Thank you for joining the Broadway Drumming 101 podcast with your host, Clayton Craddock. Thank you for listening to the Broadway Drumming 101 podcast. My name is Clayton Craddock. Today, my guest is Joe Horshevsky. As a sub on Broadway, Joe has played on 22 different productions, including shows like The Lion King, Book of Mormon, Wicked, Legally Blonde, and Young Frankenstein, just to name a few. Artists he's worked with over the years include Mario Cantone, Countess Luann from The Real Housewives of New York City, Heather Headley, Sutton Foster, Cheyenne Jackson, and Clay Aiken. Joe was also the drummer for Avenue Q for nine and a half years off-Broadway and played Promises, Promises, and Finding Neverland on Broadway. And now he's the drummer for the Radio City Christmas Spectacular. Ladies and gentlemen, Joe Horshevsky. Welcome to Broadway Drumming 101. My name is Clayton Craddock, and my guest today is Joe Horshevsky. Thank you for being here. I'm so glad you can be a part of it. I'm thrilled to be here. I've been wanting to uh, do any kind of podcast, and I'm glad to start with a uh, friend of mine. That's a good place to start. I realize that you're from Long Island. No, I, well, I, I'm from Queens when I was a kid. Oh. I, was, I, was born one count, I was born in Manhattan, in uh, Nassau County, but that was just my parents looked look for a better hospital than they could. <laughs> that's all so you know, i born in manhasset what part of queens did you grow up in i lived in flushing until i was five really yeah oh wow like a, a very residential part of flushing yeah over by um over by uh, i guess francis lewis utopia over there by the cemetery did you go to uh element well where'd you where'd you go to elementary school well that's when we moved my, my parents my, my father's work was was shifting to uh decidedly more of a New Jersey based kind of thing. So that summer I turned five was when we moved. So like a month after I turned five, that August we moved to central Jersey and that's when we moved to Branchburg temp- temporarily to Branchburg, New Jersey, near where I still live, Somerset County, Northern central New Jersey. Was it at that point where you saw a drum set and you're like, you know what, this is what I want to do for a living. No, that actually had hit. If you can believe this, that hit me much earlier um, it's, it's one of those possibly instinctive things that possibly wired in the DNA thing. No one, no one showed me the drums. No one encouraged, like said, like, Oh, you should try this as like a young, my mother's father, my late grandfather, he passed away when I was 10 months old. So I, I never, um, actually knew him as a conscious young person or, adult and he was a club day drummer that was that was his passion he and he ended up having to go right into a day job because he had a family early in his 20s but um so he, he worked for like the phone company but he was a he was a true weekend warrior of, of like new york and like the, the queens area in the particularly the 60s and the 70s and so that drum thing was somehow in my it was in me and my family DNA somehow. So I, as a young, young toddler, I was doing the typical pots and pans things. And I would set up whatever toys I had in an arrangement that resembled a drum set. It was just something I just started doing and it wasn't shown to me or encouraged by an outside influence. So what, did your parents go out and buy you a, a real drum set shortly afterwards? Uh, not shortly. It, the, the progression of instruments was that's a common one for a young kid. Um, when I was young, it was like the toy drum set thing. Like when I was by three or four, I had like the, the Smurf drum set with paper heads. <laughs> back, back in Toys R Us, there used to be a wall of paper head drum sets that's gone now. But, um, and then progressed to a, like a better toy instrument when I was six. And then finally, when I was nine, about to turn 10, that, that's when we obtained some real professional drums. My, my mother's brother, my, my late uncle, Bob, he was not a professional drummer, just like a, a, an enthused hobby drummer. And so he sold me his, his then Slingerland kit 
because he, he assumed he, he took over using his father, my late grandfather's drums. So at that point in time, he kind of passed on his slinger link kit right when I turned 10. So that's, so I, I guess, I guess I had real instruments from age 10 on. Were you taking drum lessons at that point or before? Yes. Yes. My, my, my parent, when, when we moved um, to my parents' current house, um, which is in Hillsborough, New Jersey, when I, right when I started third grade, that, that fall, of, of third grade is right when my, my mom enrolled me in uh, local music store lessons in, in Somerville, New Jersey. So I was just doing, it was like a small music studio practice pad, loud practice pad, you know, the, in the eighties, the, the remote, remote practice pad. And that was, it was basically practice pad lessons for two years before. Did you learn starting out traditional grip or match grip? M- match grip, match grip. Um, traditional grip made an appearance in high school adapted that into my bag of tricks also now, what, but it was what made you de- uh decide to adapt that uh that you know style um the traditional grip thing came about because of my high school's marching band program um the high school that i went to was had a very serious very competitive marching program it was um fashioned after the dci drum corps model of of performance that was happening around and uh, we, we would have instructors who were from that world. So it was just, it just became decided that our, our snare players would, would, would uniformly play, play traditional grip. And I think I may have even started checking it out before I actually decided to play snare in marching band. So it, it, it evolved in high school. And then uh, my, my later private teacher also covered that with me. So did you play a uh, snare drum in the marching band? Um, for a little while. I, I, I was more enthused by um, the, mul- the, it has a lot of names. Some people call it tenors, some people call it multi-toms, some people call it quads. That was, that was more my, I think because it resembled a drum set more to me. So it was, um, and I was very excited the one year we, we got quints where there was a six inch drum in the middle, oh like a, little, a little high pitch. <laughs> I remember when I was younger, I was I tried to hold up. They used to call them tri times, but they were like huge. Yeah, the, 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 yeah. The, the, the predecessor to quads was in like the seventies, like tri toms. Three, yeah, exactly. And I, you know, my back and my, I guess my, uh, my core wasn't very strong. But to hold those things up, man, it was just like, how oh, do you yeah, guys I, do that? When I was fourteen, I, I was a, I was a skinny, scrawny kid, and here I was holding the heaviest instrument. And I mean, I, I'm glad it didn't have any long-term problem any effects on my back but uh yeah i remember being like a small frame 14 year old holding a very heavy harness piece of equipment to, and for many hours because of how serious our program was it was lengthy lengthy rehearsals so did you have yeah. a lot of competitions back then and did you oh yeah win? It, that was the, that was the traditional season where yeah we did the whole band camp in august to spend like a brutal week outside learning learning your show which was the only performance program you did the whole season and you used football games as, as a chance to perform that show every single week. So I'm sure the, I'm sure the, the high school football fans kind of got sick of seeing the marching band play the same artsy show every week on the field. But, uh, but yeah, that's so football games would typically be Fridays and then competitions would be Saturdays and Sundays, sometimes to a weekend all, all around New Jersey. Were you playing in, uh, in, like rock bands, jazz bands during, you know? Yeah. Well, I, I was in, as far as school goes, I, I was in every, every facet of the band program and I was most passionate about jazz band. Jazz band was what, my, my driving force in the band program. That was what I most connected to in terms of interest and just emotional connection to the music and that particular art of playing music where drum set driving with a band so that yeah i, I connected most jazz but yeah I was, I was involved with every aspect of wind ensemble and concert band as far as rock bands go not as much i i played around with some friends uh, in a in a march in a, in a in a rock band maybe probably when i was a sophomore and we and nobody was very good it, it, it didn't we never even played a gig it was just the thing we, we kind of rehearsed and messed around with but that, that's not anything i would ever credit as being a significant part of my high school musical development so yeah, I was much more academically oriented. I, I was very focused on the school programs and then beyond that, um, programs outside of my school and the New Jersey All-State programs. So. 
Who were you listening to when you were in junior high and high school as far as drummers are concerned? Like, who were some of your influences back then? Um, excuse me. Uh, I would say being influenced by specific drummers came along in my high school years, probably in junior high, middle school. It was, it was more about just whatever music I enjoyed. I don't, I don't think, I think I, I think my brain was not yet in a place to focus on isolating a drummer's role and a drummer's impact. Was, uh, um, uh, as far as music, I, I was always in, I was kind of, I mean, maybe an odd kid in that respect that I was oftentimes like an older soul. I, I adapted so much to music that I, my father would show me and I would hear on, on classic radio. So I, 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 I actually missed out on a lot of, I was just different that I wasn't as into the, the most current things. I was in middle school, 91 to 94. And that's of course the, the grunge alternative because that's when it, that's when it hit. So everybody I knew was all about all those bands. And I was familiar with them. It just, it just wasn't what I was seeking so out. So, uh, somebody said, man, have you heard this new Nevermind album? You're like, no. No, I no, that's the thing is I, I definitely heard it because it played at like every kid's house at a party. So I, I heard I just it just wasn't like I wasn't seeking out my own. I, I heard it um I guess like atmospherically. Yeah, <laughs> it, was a, it, it was everywhere. It was everywhere. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So but I was an older soul. So I I, I um in even in, in elementary school, I thanks to my my late uncle Bob, I was a a big Beatles fan. I, I was way into the Beatles from the age like eight on. And then and then if you can believe this, like when I was nine, I got heavy into Elton John. He, he's still my, my favorite artist of all time. I'm, I'm a huge Elton fan. So that started when I was like nine years old. So all right, question, I, who, who, what's your favorite album by Elton John? Oh, that's, that's a, that's a heavy hitter. I, I don't think I have one. I, I, there's so many. Okay. If you, I, had, I almost, you remember, I don't know if you I remember. I want one per error. Okay. The, the, well, the mid seventies. Sure. <laughs> if you, if you remember, I don't know if you remember the desert Island disc. I, I can't remember what if it was a magazine, but like if you if you were on a desert island, you can only take five CDs with you. Yeah, this was, back in the nineties, everyone everyone asked that. That would be on even like, 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 like chain emails, like, oh yeah, answer this. What are your five desert island discs? Yes. Yeah. So if, the, if you had to take one Elton one John Elton John disc in, in my five, um, <clears throat> I think I actually would take because it's it's a of an important time period to me. I think I would actually take one of his. Uh, late 80s albums i might actually take sleeping with the past from its 89 of all people jonathan moffat on drums what sugarfoot. really yeah and i saw him on tour i, I saw him sugarfoot <clears throat> jonathan moffat wow and at the 1989 tour I, I was in the uh the then brendan Byrne arena later called the Continental Airlines, you know, Izod Arena in, in the Meadowlands, and uh, my oh, parents yeah. got seats behind the stage, like, like really like bad seats, <laughs> like they're actually behind, but like behind the stage, you can see the whole rack. And so I saw, I didn't even know who he was when I was nine, but I really later figured out, oh, that's who I saw. I was watching Jonathan Moffat do his <laughs> crash here, crash behind yes, his head. Yes, <laughs> yeah. I wonder if he. I guess he probably did that before. Uh, what's his name? The drummer that played for Prince, uh, John Blackwell. Oh yeah, he's yeah he, he was much older. Yeah, I should go back and check out that album. That, that, that's that's the. I mean, he doesn't do it. It's it's, it's just it's you know it's appropriate drumming, but it's but it's colorful in the way that uh, Jonathan Mock did. But yes, yeah, so that, that's going back to saying that's the music I was originally listening to that wasn't necessarily of the moment geared towards young people. When I was in high school, I started getting a lot more into drummers, and that that's when the the jazz thing happened, and I became aware of big band and fusion and you know so people finally showed me dave weckel and, and, and that all happened in high school so that was more of a teenage years when you uh finished up high school did you say i want to pursue a career in music and and yes why? and what made you say you know music instead of something else were you interested in anything else other than like pursuing a no, career in music no not enough no i i would i i i believe i was i would say i was laser focused on a on a, on a life in music nothing else nothing else was of interest enough i i i i I mean i didn't have a backup plan i guess when you're 17 you don't think of a backup plan you just kind of go for the thing that you're trying to do and that you're most interested in but um i think it was because i was doing very well musically on the high school level that i was making it into the top of all state new jersey and so i i was gauging my ability to place amongst 
music in terms of auditioning and being able to function within a high performing ensemble, such as like the New Jersey Allstate wind ensemble. And so I fit in that level. So I, I fit that, that's what gave me a clue that like, I'm not fooling myself. I had a chance at making a serious run for it. So by the time I was a junior, senior, I, I was specifically preparing to, uh, to perform, do a performance audition for, for music school and picking the schools that I was going to go for. So, Did you have an idea of what, did you, what kind of career you wanted to have after graduating college? Yes, and this, this sounds crazy, but I, I, the, the Broadway bug had, uh, had bitten me very early, and I was aware of that, I was aware of that career. And I, and I, I wanted it since I was a young teenager. So that, so I, I was, I, even though I went to school as a jazz studies major, I, my, I don't think my intent was ever to perform, I mean, perform jazz as a career. I don't, I don't know who fools himself into thinking they're going to play jazz full time as a career. So that's, that's kind of a problem with the university structure. Like, yeah, we're going to take all this money to train you in jazz and nothing else. Um, that's a, that's a whole other can of worms of the topic of the university, the academic approach to uh, career readiness. But uh, yeah, so even though I was majoring in jazz, I was even before college aiming for hopefully a life on Broadway or or, or that's or show drumming. Let's call it. Okay, so what was it that made you interested in show drumming? A very specific thing. Um, I think I was aware of i was aware of show music musical theater um loosely in my my young years but i don't think i fully understood what it was like i my, my parents actually never took me to a broadway show um shame on it no <laughs> you're gonna listen to this um i no, but my mom was familiar with my mom had seen some shows growing up in new york and, and i think and she had i had heard her listening to like the chorus line cast recording you know, but i didn't fully understand what that was but what really got me into it was when I was in seventh grade, I was in the central central Jersey region two orchestra. So this, this, I, I made, they placed me with the orchestra when I made regions and that orchestra in the repertoire for that, for that program was a medley of music from Miss Saigon. It was a Miss Saigon medley. And within the small percussion section, I, I actually auditioned within the section for the chance to play the drum set part to this medley so they actually held like a little quick runoff audition to see who could play the drum set part to this medley and i won out that small audition and that and that got me electrified so i loved the idea of playing the drum set part with an orchestra so and i love that i was like what is this music what is miss saigon and then that it, it kind of snowballed from there that, that led to seeking out what is that show that led to obtaining the cast recording and becoming obsessed with it. And that became, that led to seeking out other cast, like, okay, what are some other shows? The shows that have cool, because you know, because Miss Saigon was quite a intriguing piece for someone who's a drummer and a percussionist. It was like probably some of the, the some of the most eclectic sounds you're ever going to hear, like, at least in that time period in the, in the early nineties, mid nineties of, of percussion and drum sounds in a Broadway show. So it was, I found it electrifying. So uh, question, did you ever get a chance to play it on Broadway? No, I was, I was a little, <laughs> a little, a little young for that moment in time. Um, this like got closed on Broadway when I was a junior in college. So well, I was it not, came, it came back though. Yeah. It was a different thing. It was that one year thing. Ray Marchica, I was amazed. He, he was so cool. He got to do it. Like, Cause they, they combined the books even further. So he was doing a very, I, I hats off to him and everyone had to sub for him. That would have, that was uh, that would have been difficult for me to prepare because of all the <laughs> sounds that weren't just drums. <laughs> so no, that, that, that the moment had passed the original run, but what I did get to do, um, I had an opportunity that I kind of sought out when I was a sophomore in high school when I was 15, I found my way into watching in the pit. I, I, I found my way into sitting with Howie Joins and watching him play a performance of the Saigon when I was 15. And that was wow. like head exploding, life changing. That was really probably one of the ultimate life changing days that I, I can recall in, my, in the first half of my life. You wound up doing what you wanted to do, but you went to college to study 
Jazz at North Texas State? That's the former name. Yeah, but by, by the late 80s, it was called the University of North Texas State. But yeah, people from a certain generation all refer to it as North Texas. It's commonly called North Texas State. So people remember when it was a... University of North Texas? That's the current name. Now, where exactly is that? Because I, I know some, somebody else went there too. <clears throat> yeah, it is in the, is in the city of Denton or, or Denton. I don't know how the, the, the correct local pronunciation is Denton, um, which is sort of at, at the, the top of what they call the um, the Golden Triangle in the, the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex. Mm-hmm. So like Interstate 35 comes down from Oklahoma and it splits right in, Den- in Denton. So 35 East goes to Dallas, 35 West goes to Fort Worth, and those cities are neighboring side-by-side cities. Oh, okay. I and and Denton's kind of on, on top of that, like 40, 45 minutes to the north. All right, why did you choose... University of North Texas, as opposed to Berkeley, or Berkeley was ruled right out because of the money. That that was that that, that just because of my parents and the final the financial situation that was where we were at. Berkeley was not an option. Um, university of North Texas is, is a is a big state university in Texas, so it's I'd say more affordably priced. But that was on my radar <clears throat> specifically because of my my band director in high school. But Mindy Shireman, excellent band director, really passionate, more more concerned for students, more invested in students than you'd ever imagine a, a band director could be, like a really passionate person. And she put University of North Texas on my radar because um, she, she was very in touch with the academic world and she knew which schools had the best programs for certain types of music. And the the one o'clock lab band is, the, is that is the best known big band from the school. And they seem to go around touring, performing at schools. And there was, there was um, I think our school was once going to maybe take a bus trip to see them perform. It didn't work out. But so that school was on my radar as being like, if not the top competitive, rigorous programs to, for jazz and drum set instruction. So I, I, I looked at a few other schools, but that was, that was sort of like, the main focus of I should, I should probably go there if I really want to elevate to a competitive professional level. Do you still keep in contact with some of your contemporaries that, that uh, went to school with you there? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. There, there are some important connections that I'll get to, but yeah, I'm I, friends that I was in that class with. I talked to constantly. Yeah. That was. So you were a jazz performance major. Correct. Yeah. And you said you mm-hmm. had some issues with <laughs> being uh, I guess focusing on jazz performance as a as a discipline, or is it more? Is it something that you had a problem with from studying it, or you just saw that it wasn't something that you thought? Yeah, that I, you could I, do I wouldn't it? say I wouldn't say a problem or an issue. It was more just like seeing where I fit in. Versus, and and what's cool is that the school is gigantic. It's a huge program, so it's not like it's not like a conservatory or like a small jazz where it might be like you and Owen, the other jazz drummer. It's, it's a, it's a giant program. So there's even like, it, there's a whole structure of competing for opportunities that are scarce within the program itself. But the cool thing about being a huge program is you meet a lot of different people and, and not everybody's the same. Not everyone's cut out. And um, so I met some, some really cool guys. People I'm still in touch with at least on social media who are do a variety of gigs that have nothing to do with, um, Jazz, which is very cool. A shout out to my friend Matt Thompson, who's been the drummer for King Diamond for years. He's like an excellent metal drummer. So for example, but um, so what I saw in that program was there was some people who were very tailored for the straight ahead jazz thing. Like that, that was that was their that was their passion, that was their blood. And they they could really adapt to that. It, it was it came to me less naturally because that wasn't what I came about being influenced by. So I, it was just, I was sort of in that program side by side with people who sort of maybe were more, I don't want to say knowledgeable or passionate about actually playing authentic or, or, or contemporary cutting edge or straight ahead jazz. And that was kind of eye opening to be alongside people who went about it differently and had different passions that makes sense. Were you in, involved in a lot of uh, ensembles there, and what kind of things were you uh, yeah. a part of? Oh, go ahead. 
Yeah, not as many as I'd like to be just because it was such a gigantic program. Um, in retrospect, sometimes I wish I had gone somewhere else where I could have been involved in ensembles from the beginning of my college. Because college is short. It's, I mean, it can be long if you want if you want to make it long and hang out for a while. But Yeah, it was kind of long for me. <laughs> the, the, the way it was for my, my family and I, I we, we pretty much allotted me four, four, four years and a little extra to uh, get it done. So I... I didn't even get to play in a big band my freshman year, which is like a real drag when you think about it. Like you're like, you just came from this high level of performance in high school and just be like, you spend months not even playing the kind of music that you're best at playing. It was, that, that's, that was unfortunate. But when I did finally compete, get my way further into the program, yeah, I played in a variety of the lab bands. There's nine lab bands that rehearse at different hours of the clock. Some are actually simultaneous. Some actually don't rehearse at the time they say they're called, but like, I made it as far as what's called the three o'clock lab band, which uh, apparently just other contemporaries like Keith Carlock had hit that. That was his high benchmark to, to uh, reference. Some people made it in the three o'clock, but yeah, I, I knew uh, friends of mine were playing in the two o'clock and the one o'clock, the really high competitive band. <clears throat> and I had a semester in um, the, the school's only fusion group, um, you know, only ensemble. It was, it was a, a keyboard-based ensemble, um, Dan Hurley's ensemble with four different keyboards called the Zebras, named after the black and white of the keyboard. Um, it goes back to the 70s, but it was still around when I was there. And so, I, yeah, I played a semester, and that was what, more what I was tailored for. And I played in a, a guitar ensemble, which is kind of like a fusion group that had five guitars and a bass player. And I, I think it may have been keys. Very, very unique kind of group. There was a couple of guitar ensembles at school. If you're like a big fish in a small pond and then when you go to college you realize a lot of people are big fishes <laughs> and everyone's on a certain level and you got to compete with others it's it's eye-opening and it's humbling at the same time and, right uh eventually you know there are certain people that will stand out but uh it was an interesting experience for me going to uh, a college and then realizing a lot of other people around me are are just as good as me. So certainly, and and I, and I knew what I was getting into going to a school like that. Like I, I, I think I, I specifically chose a route of going to a place where nobody was going to tell me I was amazing. Nobody's gonna be like, oh, like, oh, you're so great. You're the best drummer in the school. Like some people can go to a place where it's a smaller place, and that's that can be their experience, which is and there's benefits for that too because you get to, you get immediate opportunities. But I think I, I knew what I was getting into. Where I was getting, you know, definitely small fish. Now, I wasn't a drum set player at Howard University. I wasn't even a music major. I was right. A, I remember you saying that. Yeah. I was in the marching band. And I just remember, I think it was 87. Now, Gordon Campbell had come in in 86, I think. Oh, man, he's going to probably kill me for years. <laughs> for revealing his age? <laughs> <laughs> no, 87, I think. I can't remember when he came. Damn, maybe he's 88. Yeah, it was. I think it was 88. But uh, take, take, take away Gordon Campbell's not in the <laughs> <laughs> But I just remember him coming in. And I just remember watching him play. Uh, you know, we, we had tri times and he was just an amazing player. And I knew he played in the, uh, the Howard University Jazz Ensemble. But I remember when I was on my way out, out of college and out, out of the marching band. And uh, one of my colleagues in the band was saying, man, there's a young drummer here that is just incredible. I mean, he's like killing it. He's just tearing everybody apart. I was like, who is it? He, he, said, he looks like a little kid, man. His name is Chris Dave. You should just check him out. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, we know how great he wound up being. But some yes. people just come in are, are just way above everyone else. And everybody's like, oh, snap. So it's kind of cool to be in that environment, just like it is being on Broadway. I mean, there's drummers that are incredible and we're all good at what we do. And I just believe that there are some drummers that are just more versatile and more better than me. And of course, I can only do certain things, but you are versatile. You could do so many different things. And that's why you've done that. so many different shows and been so successful. Mm -hmm. So after college, you were laser focused on Broadway. You came back to New York and did what? Well, I, I took a little a, a quick detour because I think at um that's what I finished I finished school right at twenty two, I uh, I did it in four years in like a little bit of a summer semester. So like right right, right before I turned twenty two, I, I was done with North Texas and I, I got my bachelor of music in, in uh, jazz performance jazz studies. Um, so I 
you know, what do you do with that? It's, it's, it's like they say in Avenue Q, like, what, what, do you, what do you do with the, the BA in music? <laughs> in English. That, that was a brief chapter where I sort of didn't have an exact plan of how to go about. I, I figured it out quickly, but I, I went home to Central Jersey and I wasn't doing all that much that was getting me towards what I wanted to do. I was, I, mean, I was doing temp jobs, obviously just, just to pay bills and um, playing in a hard rock cover band and doing a couple couple theater gigs like the high school thing and all that. But I quickly realized that was a slow path that wasn't going to go in the direction I wanted. So I quickly changed courses and, and um, went for the cruise ship scene, which is probably what I should have done right out of college. So I, I mean, so I, I guess I wasted six, seven months not getting on that path, but um, cruise ships were the logical step for me because it was an opportunity that was open to fresh college graduates. You know, they, they, it was, that scene was very welcoming of hiring people in their early twenties. And it was not only show drumming, it was a variety of everything. It was all, it was all kinds of, but of course, but all very reading based, very, very much based in chart, chart reading and playing with click. So cruise ships was a very logical place for me to go to. And that's what, that's what I did at 22. Royal princess, Caribbean I, cruises. Uh, I I worked for both Carnival and Norwegian cruise lines. And you did shows, uh, Broadway shows on those sh- ships. Yeah, I, I wouldn't call them Broadway shows. I mean, they, yeah, there was Broadway music, but the the style of performance was was so very different than what we do in, in our in our you know. In what way? I've, I've never oh, done it. Oh, so. oh it, 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 um, I, and it's funny. I actually knew what I was getting into because again, like, any of the differences because. If you can believe this, um, both my high school chorus and my high school band had both, you know, we took an annual trip, like the band trip and the chorus trip, and I was in both programs. So I, lucky me, I got to like spend the whole month of May on vacation, basically, when I was in high school. I could these two, two trips. And um, both groups had taken a cruise on the same ship. So on, on Carnival's old ship called The, the Fantasy, uh, I had taken as a passenger with the chorus and with the band and I had seen the production show. So I, I, I knew what their production shows kind of looked and sounded like. And the one thing I noticed when I was 17, seeing a show is I remember watching the drummer, the band was kind of off to the side of the stage and what he was playing wasn't necessarily matching what I was hearing out of the sound system. And that's when I learned that there's pre-recorded parts on some of these shows. So it doesn't matter that you're playing. The band is almost like the live prop on stage. Like you're playing, the microphones are on depending on how much the sound man wants to put the live band up or not, but there's pre-recorded tracks. So it's like, a, a, I guess they don't trust the people, a, a fail safe system where I know I, I noticed that when I was 17, seeing this production show, I was like, okay, I heard that, but he's not playing that from what I was watching on the corner of the stage. So that's one part of it. A lot of the production shows, I mean, maybe it's different now. I, I haven't been on the ship for like, 17 years so but then there was a thing where like you're playing along with a part a pre-recorded track so it only makes sense to play exactly what's on the track for the production shows for the dance shows it's so weird and there's much more instrumentation the, you have, the, the instrumentation that's on the on stage is basically like a glorified almost like a smaller school jazz band like, like a reduced part smaller horn section rhythm section but you might hear like an orchestra on the track so it's it's definitely like a, a fuller sweetener track but everything's on there so you're just playing along with the pre-recorded track but a click also and a lot of the times the click and the track didn't line up with some really poor, poorly created materials it was it was it was better when it was, it was when you're playing shows that weren't with a with a pre-recorded track like if you were playing for an entertainer like they would call them fly on entertainers like a guest singer or even some, like a guest juggler or, or like a like a, a violinist who would play with tracks and use the band also. How long did you do the cruise ship thing? Um, for the better part of two years. Took, took a couple breaks to go home for some family functions, but I, uh, over the course of two years, yeah. Then you came back and uh, we're back in New Jersey and we're looking forward to opportunities in New York City. Yeah, basically I, I, I made the conscious decision um, of this ship would be my last ship. This was in the, in the fall of 04. I, I, and I remember actually... I. I, final story. I, earlier that year, I, I had seen, I'd seen my, my, Michael Blanco, the bass player, buddy of mine. I had seen him, and he said he said something to me like, like, like if, if you don't, if you if you do any more cruise ships, I'm going to kick your ass. Or somebody. He, he, he was saying, I think he was trying to tell me that like I, I think I had done enough, and it was 
time to uh, come to the city and get get off the ships because I, I I had gigged with him on the thing before well in between ship contracts so yeah so in the fall of before I made the decision that, okay this was the last the last ship and I was going to uh, just do what it takes to stay put and, and uh, get get started on the New York scene from 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 the winter of 05 on. So what was the first thing you did as far as breaking into Broadway? Thank you for listening to the Broadway Drumming 101 podcast. Stay tuned for more. If you like what you hear on the show, subscribe to the Broadway Drumming 101 newsletter at broadwaydrumming101.substack.com. That's substack, S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K.com. The Broadway Drumming 101 newsletter is your one-stop shop for everything you'll need to know about playing drums for Broadway musicals. When you subscribe to the newsletter, you'll learn about what it takes to be a successful pit musician with content delivered directly to your email inbox two to three times a week. For $5 a month or $50 a year, you'll have a backstage pass to the world of a Broadway drummer playing on a hit show. As a paying subscriber, you'll receive behind-the-scenes access to the life of a musician who makes a living on Broadway. You'll also be able to read every post, not just those occasional free ones. You'll get access to all newsletter issues in the archives and have an ability to participate in subscriber-only comments and events. If you become a founding member for a gift of only $75, you'll receive discounted private drum lessons, an opportunity to watch Clayton play in the pit of his show, and a 25% discount on future promotional products. If you'd like to make a direct contribution to the production of this show, you can reach us at Venmo at Clayton-Craddock, Cash App at Syncopated, that's C-I-N-C-O-P-A-T-E-D, or PayPal at Clayton Craddock. Any amount of support will be appreciated. Thank you for listening. So what was the first thing you did as far as breaking into Broadway? Um, well, yeah, I, I guess at that point in time, I was saying yes to all, like, like, like you do when you're brand new, I was saying yes to all the little gigs, all like little like cabarets and small things that I guess the first show that I did um, was an off double off Broadway off. It, it was officially off, off Broadway. It was uh, downtown. Uh, it was a, sh- a show called, I don't remember the name of the theater. Uh, I think it was the transport group. It was called the audience. And I, I, I actually, I, I shared the gig with Greg Landis. So I guess it was a scheduling thing. So maybe he was originally going to do it. So, so Greg did half the dates and I, I did half the dates and that, yeah, that was in the spring of 05. So that was my first, New York production. So that was your show or you were subbing well, for Greg? I, I, it, it, was, it wasn't clear. It was, it was, I, think, I think both our names were in the program. It was, it, was, it, was, it was a very rare split gig. Like It was both our gig depending on the day. There was a chunk of time Greg couldn't do it, so I, I started it and then Greg did the rest of the run. Very, very unusual, but it was cool. That's, that's where I met Greg. Yeah. <laughs> and after that, then what was the next progression? After that, I was very fortunate to actually get in line with my my first Broadway subbing opportunity. That was um, that that came up very quick. Um, I have my well, my, my very close friend Sean McDaniel, who a lot of people a name a lot of people recognize from all things Broadway. He's a very very important and very successful in this uh, scene. And Sean's a college friend of mine. He, he's he's four years older than me, but I I um I crossed paths in North Texas actually, and that was a very very, very fortunate connection to make where we both realized we're people who are enthused about show drumming, which was a rarity down at that school. So we became fast friends bonding over that specifically. And then Sean came to New York before I did. I was living in New Jersey. He left Texas and went to New York and stayed there. So he was recommending me for things as soon as he could, which I am forever grateful for and indebted to him for. And one of the things that came up was that there was the Broadway production of Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. And a lot of the musicians weren't the typical musicians that were doing a lot. Uh, there was a, a, co- a contractor was the late Sam Litvia and um, the, the drummer at the, the man on the, on the drum book was Ed Fast. Um, and at the time I heard he, he was looking for 
a new sub or two, I guess, or Sean had heard. So Sean put my Nate, he recommended me to him and I or told me to make contact on his recommendation. So I uh, got in touch with Ed fast on that recommendation and very thankful to Ed. He, he decided to give me when I was 24, my, my first Broadway subbing opportunity. So what was it like preparing for that? Um, it was huge for me. It was like, I, it was, I would say I use the term laser focused, but it was like my, my life revolved around that preparation for that, that month or two. That was, um, all I cared about. Uh, I was, I was living in a, an apartment in Weehawken at the time. So I still had all my drums and gear back at my parents' house an hour away. Um, so I was, I would just drive out to their house and, and practice at their house. So I, I made the setup as best I could with whatever gear I had at the time. And it was just constant practice. And, uh, I was, I was lucky they actually made, they made, it was early times for this, but they made a, a, bit, a conductor video. So I was able to study a conductor video, um, which I think I copied off the, the DVD. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was, it was a con- and I think I watched it probably eight times, which is more than I watch shows now. I'm going to sub, but when you're brand new, like why, if you have the free time, why not? And, and if they're open to having you, you know, obviously they, they want you to absorb as, much as you need. So I, I think, I, yeah, I think I watched eight times and really know exactly how it went, what to expect from the conductor and parts. And I'm sure it went well. Yes, it, it, it sure. I, I mean, it was intensely scary, but uh, <laughs> as it always <laughs> is. Yeah. That, that show itself, fortunately is maybe not the most rigorous of shows uh, in terms of the material, but um yeah, I felt very fortunate that I had a, a positive start to this whole crazy thing because it's it's not always as smooth as that. There's a lot of ups and downs and more difficult people and difficult experiences. But that one was distinctly a positive experience. Everyone in the orchestra, I mean, I was the youngest person there, but um, everyone in the orchestra was so kind to me. And the conductor was Kristen Blodgett. And she actually... Oh, she's she great. Did, she designated me on my first show. Really? Wow. <laughs> like, I, I, I don't think I even, I think at 24, almost 25, I don't think I even, I even captured the weight of like what that, like, yeah, you're, you're, you're already designated. So that was, um, before you go on, share with people what designation and approved means on Broadway. Oh yeah. I'd be happy to expand on that. And, and this, I, I've actually found that this is, um, the terms of this are different depending on the show. Some, some shows have, looser terms and of what they consider approved and some shows have very methodical by the book like numeric systems of um so so before let's talk about approval first approved is something that we usually is usually determined about a sub based on one at the most two performances i would say where based on your performance your first performance as a sub um, especially if, if the conductor, if the music director happened to be in that day, if they didn't put you in with the, with the associate conducting her um, that day. Um, based on that performance, are you approved to come back? It, and, and, I, and that doesn't necessarily mean that you, you're in for the run of the show. Things, things could go south after that, but are, are you approved? W- will they let you back in the door for a, a, second, a second chance? Um, and so that, that's, that's like a level to guess. You're, you're approved to come back. Or maybe a conductor wants to decide on, they might say, decide on somebody after two or three shows. It depends on the conductor. So that's, that's my understanding of what of being approved um, counts as. Now, being designated, that, that is a status that is earned by a sub on a show. And some shows, it's expected to be earned. Otherwise, it's not, not going to work out. Designated is where the, um, the MD and maybe the associate and maybe even the in-house contractor, whoever the powers that be are within that pit, decide that that sub's performance is solid enough to be considered on par as the regular. So there's no issue with them being placed in, into any performance, meaning they, 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 them being there is as solid as the regular being there and that they could play they could, that sub could be in to play when a first time sub comes in on a different instrument within their section. That's generally my technical understanding of it. So, and, and a lot of shows 
have a won't, won't designate somebody until until at least five appearances, and then maybe it might take you longer than that to even earn that designation. But you're, you're usually informed by the in-house or the MD, like okay, you're, you're designated now. Um, and it doesn't always happen. And, so, and I, I, I've also played on shows where it's a lot more loose than that. And I've never even heard that word thrown around. So it really depends on the show. But I think designation for where, where on shows where that is a thing, where that does matter, is essentially saying that your your performance adequately represents the regular. So if you're there, it's it's a non-issue. So you were designated after your first time subbing on a Broadway show. Yes, that's that's heavy, <laughs> and I, and, I, and it's certainly something I never expected. Like I, I understood, like okay, that's, I just I had a, I, I mean, I, I prepared like I prepared for it, like my life depended on it. So I guess that's going to happen. That's that's what what would lead up to it. Um, but yeah, that was a, a very positive start to the the subbing experience in that way. Did that lead to any other subbing opportunities? That particular show, I don't think it did in terms of directly rooted from that show um any other subbing opportunities that i, that I got subsequently came as a result of di- different connections um but what that show did lead to was that contractor the late sam lafia um he was mostly a tour contractor broadway was a rare foray for him so it, it was it was i i don't know what business terms came why it came to be that, that he was the, the New York contractor for Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, but he was, but he was mostly a tour guy. And one of his tours, he had, it was the Troika tour of um, Joseph and the Technicolor, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, starring Patrick Cassidy, was out already. And um, the drummer was leaving the gig for another gig. So a replacement was needed for that tour. And based on hearing about me from doing well subbing on Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, Sam invited me to take over that tour, which, which coincided with actually Ch- Chitty Chitty Bang Bang closed New Year's Eve, New Year's 05, 06. And then that tour needed a replacement in January of 06. Oh, wow. So you went on right on tour. Correct. Oh, and that's after good. Seven, yeah. How long was that? Um, <clears throat> the tour, had, I, I did half that tour. It, it had been in progress since, excuse me, <clears throat> since the, um, the year prior. So I was on that chair until it closed at the end of July. So I guess seven months okay. of, of that show. And so you got a little taste of making steady money. Playing. Absolutely. It's yes. A great, it's a great feeling. I got, I had that feeling when I went out on the bus and truck tour of Footloose in the year 2000. I was like, wait a minute, I don't have to drag my drums around and I get a big $750 a week. I'm rich. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and I was very fortunate. Even though this was Troika, this, this, was, this was an equity tour. So, it, it, it wasn't the bus and truck model. I, I was actually staying oh, in a city, in a, in, a, in a hotel for a week and sometimes two weeks and then traveling on Mondays. It, it, it was that, it was that model. So I, w- I was very lucky to get, get that opportunity early just at, at the age of 25. So that wow. was, so you came back, you start looking around for opportunities to sub again. Yes. I, I, I probably would, had I not been engaged already to my still married to my, <laughs> to my, my wonderful wife. Um, had I not, already been engaged had I been single I probably looking back I probably would have toured more throughout my 20s but it um it, it came to the, I I was settling into more of a commuter domestic situation earlier on than maybe some do it um but yeah as a result of that I was back in the New York area by the by the summer of 06 and yes I was looking for I, I was like the thing to do okay I did that did that tour and now I'm going to pursue more subbing opportunities to, yeah as my so you, became, you became domesticated. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I sure did. Yeah, that was. Uh, it's a wonderful thing, people. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna lie. Being um, b- being married is a wonderful thing, from what I hear. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that, that, I know. I know that's a that is a can of worms. That have I'm just joking. Of- no, I'm uh, seriously. Being married is a good thing. I, I'm I'm all for marriage and and family. I love my kids. Just like I'm sure you do too. You have two kids, yes. correct? Two kids, correct. Great, great. Let's not talk about family here. Let's talk about drums. <laughs> right, yeah. So, Forget them. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, start looking for opportunities. And then what was the next thing that came your way? That summer, um, I, I was um, in another, another cold call situation where it was, it was recommended. I, I believe this recommendation actually came from 
um, a percussion, a, a great percussionist who plays in the all around New Jersey, Philadelphia, and New York, a man named Ed Shea. Um, I had met Ed Shea in March of that year on the Joseph tour. He, he was the local percussionist in Philadelphia. And um, he was the percussionist on a show. It was, it was Martin Short's show. It was called Martin Short, Fame Becomes Me. It was, it was Martin Short. It was on a one-man show. It was Martin Short and a, and a small ensemble of actors. It was the funniest thing I've ever seen and uh, on Broadway. And uh, he, it was a situation where uh, I... A right time, I got in touch with Rich Mercurio. I, I uh, cold called him, or, or based on the recommendation, and um, Rich was uh, receptive to having me in. I think I think he liked the fact that I was very available. I, I didn't have much else going on, so I, I, I was available to cover pretty much any date he threw at me. Um, so that started that connection, and, and uh, I, I can't say enough good things about Rich Mercurio. If you, like, I mean, God, if you want to talk about one of the best players to ever do it, so Amen. somebody who somebody who makes any music he touches, he he is the feel man. He will make it feel as great as it's as it can possibly feel. If you want that feel, call Rich Mercurio. <laughs> that's, that's all I can. <laughs> that's what I can say about him. And, and and what a what a kind, warm person. And that, that's so important. Um, so Rich was kind enough to let bring me into that situation. So my my next show to sub was Martin Short. Theme comes to me. Mm. I haven't heard. You know, I don't. I don't know much about that. How is it? It's a one man show, and well, it's a small ensemble. Okay. Yeah, it, um, it, was, it, it was. It was. It was mostly sketches. It was a musical, but it was, it was like musical sketches, and it was just so so funny. Really, did well. you? Uh, follow Rich to uh, sub at uh, Little Shop of Horrors. Was that around? That, that was prior time? to that. that. That was when he did Little Shop. I was still working on Crucians. I, I did see that show, but I hadn't okay. met him. That, that was prior. Yeah, I think that's where I'm. I don't know where I met him, but I, I was, I was going to bring up something that that you were going to talk about before, as far as being approved and designated and doing a show, and. Uh, I was going to ask you about note people uh, when a conductor gives you notes after sure, the show. Sure, sure. I, I have a lot of experience with that. <laughs> well, <laughs> yes, I, I, I bring that up because <laughs> I subbed for Rich Mercurio at uh, Little Shop of Horrors back in oh, the cool. early 2000s. And uh, Henry Aronson was the musical director. And I just remember, you know, I think that might have been the second show I subbed after Rent. But I just remember getting notes and you know not not being sad that I got them I when I get notes I want to know what I need to improve on so when you get a note Shannon Ford said you know what you should say when you get a note say thank you and nothing else just this is this is what you know they're there to help you get better so Henry Aronson you know, I, I used to be nervous when he'd pick up his pad like during the show and write stuff. Oh, that's down. the worst. That is the worst. <laughs> when, when you know they're writing about you. Yeah, so like, I, 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 I've i been in pits where I'm like grumbling to myself, depending who, like, 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 like put your pen down. Like, like just. <laughs> <laughs> so he'd pick up his, his, he did this one time to me. I, I said this on another podcast, but, you know, I told him, it's like every time you pick up your pad, I think you're like writing about me. So, uh, during a, a quiet part of the show, this hits home. Like, he's like, "Hey, Clayton." He <laughs> <laughs> starts teasing you about it. Yeah. Yeah, he was just messing with me. I was like, "Damn, man. Okay, okay. Now you're just playing with me." But you know, yeah, you do think about, "Oh my God, I, I made a mistake." He's going to write about, it. so he picks up. You know, he or she picks up their pad. But fortunately, you know, the 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 more you do the show, the fewer times they pick up their pad the better you're going to be. Then you can kind of, you don't necessarily want to relax totally because you're still there doing a job, but then you can talk to the guys <clears throat> and the women in the band. And yeah. So tell me about your, your note taking or your note experience. Oh, overall, this, this, is, this is all over the place. Cause this depends. And I, I've done a lot of subbing at this point. So I've had a variety of experiences with, with note giving. And what I've learned is that it really is about the conductor and his or her personality and approach hands-on or, or less so hands-on approach to a show. Some people are very meticulous and you could be somebody who has subbed at a show for years. I, I've been where 
<clears throat> it's, it, it's, it's almost not about you. It's like, it's almost like the way this conductor works is they're going to give notes no matter what. So even if you've been playing something on a show for four or five years, you're still going to get notes. There's a couple people that are like that and it's, they have every right to be, it's their job. It's just, that's one approach. And then there's, then there's some who are definitely, um, a little more relaxed or I don't know if entrusting is the word where like, like once, once you've settled into your place there and you do what you do, it's not necessary for them to tweak your experience. And it's, I just, I find it's very different from show to show from person to person. I've had, <clears throat> I mean, uh, one experience I'll share and this isn't a negative thing. It's just, it's just the way it was. Um, when I was first subbing at the lion King, um, uh, Carl German, the, the uh, MD there, has he, he's the kind of MD that will give you a lot of notes, constructive notes, for a while. Like, not just your first show, for your first, at least, at least for me, I don't know about the other, the other subs at the time, but um, um, you'll get multiple note sessions. And, and not, just like, not just like coming by the pit with, a, oh, hey, a couple of things, like, like meet me in my office. Uh, and it, which, is, which is a little off-putting, because you might think like, oh, oh, oh shoot, like this is it. Going to but the principal's office. No, no, but it, it, it's, it's weird for, for for him. That's just it's, that's just his thorough way of of doing it. It was like a note session where he's not he's not annoyed. You. He was not like, oh, this is, it's just more like oh, oh, this and this and this and it's just so that that's an example of someone who's very thorough. And for for many of your first times in there, you, you'll you'll get a lot of information. So that's an example of somebody who was very will be a word if you sit with them. Meticulous. Yeah. I find, uh, I find it amazing that some conductors, like when I was subbing at Cats the last go-around under Bill Lanham, the conductor would, you know, after the either the first act or after the show would say, yeah, and Mr. Mistopheles in the... Uh, Second half of Measure 32, you played mezzo piano instead of piano. Could you please play? I'm like, oh, my God, how can you hear that? <laughs> yeah, no, no. Yeah, there's some people who are microscopic. But yes. Yeah. yeah, play the, you know, play one third off of the ride. So it makes you, I'm like, oh, my yeah, God. Yeah, yeah, they're, 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 yeah. <laughs> and we, we adapt it because, as we know, there are some people who are like that. And <clears throat> some people who are the complete opposite of that. Like, not, mm. Neither is like wrong or right. It's just like, it's, it's a personality thing. Yeah, some people will, will, will microscope you. Yeah, exactly. Like the, the third beat of bar 32, more mental pan, exactly. And some people will be like, yeah, man, feels great. See you right. next time. Yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> and sometimes those people, you know, you kind of know you made a mistake. They'd look at you in the monitor, be like, then you know you made a mistake and you know what it I, was. I th- th- that is, that is the, That's the most professional thing for an MD when when it doesn't need to come up in the note session, you're fully aware that mishap happened. You don't have to have a conversation about it. Like, especially if it's a show you've subbed a hundred times. Right. Okay. Yeah. You're like, okay. We had that moment. We had that moment. Okay. Right. I, I missed that. God, my yes. bad. But like, so I, it, that does not need to come up in a note session. I feel when it, when it's mutually acknowledged, especially with a, with a glance, like I know, I know. <laughs> <laughs> so after the, uh, after subbing for rich, you went uh, for looking for more opportunities. Yeah, that's and that, that was that was a slow a slow climb. That was that I, I don't think um, I don't want I, I couldn't say that things uh, snowballed from there. It was you know because we, we realistically it wasn't that established yet. Like, it wasn't like oh yeah call him. It was um, it was kind of a slow grind for a year or two to make more and more subbing opportunities happen. It's like slowly added on to. Um, onto the short list of shows that I was able to sub. So uh, this is kind of important. When looking for opportunities, because I'm sure you've had people reach out to you when you've had your own show. Yes. And uh, there are people that uh, ask you to come in to watch or ask you for opportunities for, for them to sub for you. What are some things that people should do and what are some things that people shouldn't do when contacting someone who has a chair on Broadway? Um, yeah, the, I have, I have opinions on this and I, and I, I try to keep very <clears throat> a positive outlook on, on this. Cause I realize not everybody 
knows. And so I, I don't want to say things that would, that would like make anyone feel bad or self-conscious about like how they may have accidentally approached someone or, or, or approached someone when, when they knew less about how, how to do things. But, but wait, there's more. Stay tuned for part two of my conversation with Joe Horchewski. Thank you for listening to the Broadway Drumming 101 podcast. Head over to the Broadway Drumming 101 YouTube page where you'll find unedited conversations that I've had with some of your favorite musicians. On the YouTube page, you're going to find bonus content that I don't feature on my Instagram page or here on the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and click on that little bell at the top so that you'll be notified when a new video is uploaded. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for more. Thank you.